This is Mark Kermode. Welcome to BAFTA Podcasts. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this session. My name's Linda Mars. I'm a head of fiction directing at the NFTS, but also a producer. So I'd like to introduce the panel, which is Kate Ogborn, producer who most of you have probably seen the wonderful Deep Blue Sea. And Kate also worked on Red Riding, Bronson, um, a long, a long history in the industry. And on my right, Rupert Walter, wonderful screenwriter who's worked both here and in the States and has worked with people ranging from Tom Cruise to Michael Mann. And on my left, Brian Gilbert, the director of Tom and Viv Wild, The Gathering, who's also worked both a lot in LA and here. So what we're going to try to look at is the relationship between writer, producer, and director. It's not going to quite be sort of kitchen tips because each writer is so singular. I think generalizations are valuable only up to a point. But if you have specific questions, we can try to answer them. But I thought we might start just by asking each member of the panel to talk about how they see the relationship how they best work with writer, how Rupert feels, what sort of behaviour, what sort of treatment, what he expects, apart from obviously intelligence and understanding from a producer and director. I mean, I think, as Linda was saying, it's difficult to generalise because not only is each writer unique, each project is unique and the kind of dynamics of each project as well. So I guess how I see it is about, for my position as a producer, is that my role is to both try and kind of marshal the project and keep a sense of what the kind of goals are and what the sort of schedule is and making sure that we're, you know, that you're kind of aware of the sort of clock in the background and that you're helping people hit their deadlines and that you're helping it stay on track in that, in a very, on a very sort of practical level. But more importantly than that, I hope that what my role is is as a sounding board and as the kind of first audience for the script and hopefully you can do that in quite an intimate way with the writer rather than in a sort of public kind of meeting way um, and I try it took me a long time to learn this and it was really the writer Tony Grizzoni who taught me this but I try to let the writer tell me how they want to work and find the space to do that so with somebody like Tony when we were working on Red Riding I was working at Revolution Films, um, running their television slate, and Tony had been commissioned to adapt David Peace's quartet of novels. So it was a kind of mammoth job, because it was four brilliant, brilliant novels, but which are written in a kind of very particular voice of David Peace. They have great stories in them, but they're not sort of heavily plotted. They're very impressionistic. So it was a kind of really interesting job as, a, as an adaptation for Tony. He lives around the corner from me in Stoke Newington, and we'd known each other a long time, although we hadn't worked on a project of that scale together before. And so the way he liked to work is to come round for breakfast about four days a week, <laughs> much to the amusement of my husband and my daughter, who were like, oh, OK, <laughs> somebody new at the breakfast table, and just talk, because my house was on his route to the library where he was writing it, and we'd just chat, and some days the breakfast would go on for ten minutes, and he'd go, and some days it would go on for an hour and a half, and we'd just talk about whatever was preoccupying him at that particular point, and it might be a particular scene, it might be the overall kind of arc of that script that he was tackling, or how, how do you turn it into something which has the 
scale of a four-parter, but the kind of unique distinctiveness of a single in each case that a director is going to be able to make their own when they take the script on. And it was interesting, of course, with Red Riding, you had three different directors. Yes. Yeah. Were the relationships very different between each th- director and Tony? Yeah, I mean, I think they were. I mean, what ultimately happened with Red Riding is that Channel 4, we, we did develop all four screenplays, and Channel 4 decided that they were going to make three instead of four. So we were kind of faced with a decision about whether we tried to merge the four novels into three or whether we took one out. And in the end, the decision, it seemed better and more effective to take the second novel, which was 1977, out. Because you could take it out without affecting the kind of plot lines of the other subsequent Mm -hmm. stories. And it just felt... For both Tony and I, it felt like a better decision than fudging it and trying to kind of merge the sort of plot lines across three stories. <coughs> James Marsh, who directed 1980, had got involved quite early because he'd, I'd been working with him on a script that he was developing and Andrew Eaton and I both felt that he would be someone who could be a really interesting choice mm-hmm. for it. And it was, we were fortunate in that Man on Wire was just kind of taking off, so suddenly everybody was really interested in him. So he was kind of having a sniff around and getting shown scripts a bit bit earlier. I mean, I think all three of them did work in a very different way. I had um, moved off the project by the time the directors really came on board because I was producing Samantha Morton's film, The Unloved, at the same time, so I wasn't involved in the production of Red Riding. But um, I think that, from what I understand from Tony's point of view, that... I think he ended up doing quite a lot of script work with James, quite a lot of reworking the script when, once James came on board, and less with Julian and with Anand. Yeah. But I think that's just the sort of nature of those, mm-hmm. you know, the three filmmakers, really. So it actually also triggers the issue of um, at what point financiers are involved, because to some extent we're, we're talking about the immediate writer-director-producer-writer mm. relationship, but obviously... If you have financiers in the frame, you're mediating in a different way. And I see, personally, I think absolute heaven is just working with a writer on occasions where I've had development money and <coughs> a writer and a project I love. It's, it's sort of blissful in a way to, to have that time just to focus without having too many views. How do you want to work in a way that doesn't I mean, drive that, that ideal situation of having just one person to work with, that's extremely rare unfortunately also someone to work with who you trust you know it's, it's, as I was saying just before you know as General Patton said about leadership it's easy when it's going well you know working with directors and writers is easy uh, producers and directors is easy when the script you've turned in everyone goes this is marvellous we'll shoot it tomorrow that never happens and that look you get from a director when they're sort of oh, you know we've got to get stuck into it and the responsibility what I look for is responsibility from a producer or director. You know, you had some ideas together. Some of them didn't work out. And often as a writer, you feel you're the one carrying the can for it. The producer's gone off to do another show or, or, you know. Collaborating really is about taking responsibility, both of you, for what you produce or what you produce on the page. And the biggest disappointments I've had are when people were not really committed to spending the time that was required to get that from a good script to a really good script that was going to be shot and a really good script that would be shot and made into a good movie. And there's one director I worked with, Michael Mann this is, who you'd think would have lots of people around him. I only ever met with him 
We never had any producer, any executive. It was a Disney project, I think. And he would then record all the conversations, and he would then transcribe. Well, he didn't do it, of course. He would transcribe all the conversations. So I've got hundreds of pages. That was so that he could come back. When we met up again in six months' time, or whatever, two months' time, whatever it was, he could come back to wherever he'd been mentally, because he'd been shooting something else and doing this and doing that. But the responsibility that he took was certainly for that, for, for, for Hollywood, is absolutely remarkable. And he said, I have two jobs. He said, I work with writers and I shoot films. And that's what a movie director should be doing. And it's amazing. And one of the problems, I think, with UK television is that directors, when they step up from directing television to, or step sideways, whatever it is, to directing movies, they have no experience yeah. of working with writers. Because for reasons that are obscure and, and stuck in the past, television directors in this town in the UK at any rate, don't really have very much responsibility for script development. That's almost exclusively a producer thing. Whereas when it comes to movies, it really is ultimately the director who takes over from someone like, you know, Linda, you know, who's been developing it. So responsibility <coughs> is important to me. And of course it depends also on who came up with the idea first. Because you sometimes go to a director or producer with an idea, so that's yours, or they come to you with an idea, it's theirs, or you're rewriting a script of their so how the power battle goes, how the kind of the mutual sense of kind of compromise and agreement and responsibility, how that goes, is in part about whose project it is. If it's your project, you're more powerful in that relationship than if you're not. Of course, that said, once you've been paid for this, whether they've optioned the script or the idea or the book or whatever it is, once you've been paid, then as, as one director reminded me, he said, you know, we will do it this way on... Thursday when they're starting shooting because you're working for me and contractually is absolutely right. So of course as a writer with a director in the end before you start shooting and I've had this conversation you know on the, the night before the director says well you know I, I think I, the scene should be like this and the director says I think it should be like this and he says well I'm going to be the one at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning with 120 people asking me what to do next and of course he's right in the end in the end the director will always win that Argument because I don't have to be there with 120 people asking me what's going to go on. So unfortunately, you do it in the end lose that particular battle. But to me, the collaborative work that I've done with producers and with directors, some of the television's been made, some of it hasn't, but that has been some of the best working experiences that I've had, is working with a director or producer who I really admire. Not necessarily somebody terrifically famous, just someone who's really good. And the amount that you can learn and produce a good script. Now, if it gets made, if so-and-so wants to do it or doesn't want to do it or they want to pay for it or don't want to pay for it, that's another thing. But at least the experience of in of itself, you came out as a better writer than you did when you first went into it. So what was different about those, where it, was re where it really worked, where you felt you improved as a writer? I think, on the whole, let's say you've got an idea for a, a script. You may or may not want to get paid to do that because, because once you get paid, then the people paying you, as Linda says, the finances, they will also have some ideas about how it should be. So the longer you can hold off from having too many people involved, the more at least you can write down what you initially intended. I think the best experiences for me have been when I started absolutely at the beginning with a director or a producer. And so a, a, a director came to me and he said, he said, you know, I'd love to make a spy movie that gave me the same punch that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy first gave me, so when I read the book in 1960, uh, not Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Spy Came In From The Cold, which was 1963. He said, how, if we were gonna do that film now, 
He didn't mean take the story. He meant give it the same impact of the discovery that British intelligence are wrapped up with, you know, the ex-Nazis and all that. He said, what would that be? And that was what we started from. We then spent six months traveling around the US talking to people who'd been in the CIA and DEA and places like that. We did all this research, and it took years, the project, but it was a most extraordinary process to go through. I mean, unusual in the sense of the amount of research that was required, but not in terms of the responsibility that the two of us took for what ended up as an 80-page treatment, you know, and then a 110-page script. So absolutely everything was sort of nailed down, and that, was, as a process, was a really fascinating one. Brian, you've also, perhaps you could also touch on the issue of when the writer with whom you're working has been the originator of the project, either as the writer of the novel or the play or biographical material. Sure. Probably the very best experience I had with a writer was when I brought the idea to the writer and we started from scratch. Not completely from scratch because it was a biographical story. But I cast the writer. In other words, I had to find the writer. And in this particular case, which was to be a biographical, yet another biographical movie about Oscar Wilde, a very, very big subject, which I was quite intimidated to take on, finding the writer was a journey. And then when we found the writer, developing that trust and personal relationship, I found a writer who identified very personally with the story, not with Oscar Wilde, but with uh, things I thought... He had a profound response to thematic, things that were thematically central to the story. It's very difficult to generalise because every project is unique, every writer is unique. From a director's point of view, it's a little bit like working with actors in that, you know, every actor is different. There ain't no rule. There are perhaps some guidelines. For me as a director, working with actors, you take kind of a Hippocratic oath. First rule is do no harm. Try not to get in the way of the process. Try not to block the writer. Try to understand what the writer is doing, where the writer is at. So I always used to give myself the note, don't overreact when you read the reader draft that comes in. Read it and then read it again. Never respond immediately without taking thought because all directors, everybody in movies, we have strong opinions, we have strong ideas, we're reacting, especially a director, you're, you're reacting to the movie in your head and you're actually not often, I've found myself, I wouldn't be seeing what was there. So before giving notes, I would always try to see what the writer has genuinely given me. That's not immediately obvious, I have to say. And I, I just wanted to pick up one point Rupert uh, said. Directors actually do spend most of their time, you, you know, you're lucky when you make the movie, a lot of your time is spent in development, if you're lucky. And you hope. A great deal of my time has been spent thinking about stories, researching subjects, and working with writers, and trying to develop a great screenplay. A very long process, far longer than the actual shooting. So that Becoming attuned to good story development is, I think, a, a vital part of director's learning process. Uh, there isn't any handbook out there that gives you a, a way of doing this. 
The world is full of script manuals these days, as it is of acting manuals and everything else. And it just reminds me a little bit of those, you know, we look back and laugh at the way, say, in, in, in Shakespeare's day and afterwards, you had the gesture books for actors and how you show fear and so on and so forth. And, and manuals can tend to be reduced eventually to sort of gesture books for actors or gesture books for writers and so on. Every project is unique. There are templates and there are sort of patterns and it's all good to be aware of that, but I feel I've always striven to understand the unique quality of that particular project. A great deal of the discussion is thematic, is character, is trying to find those incidents and moments which reveal those actions that, that are somehow very fruitful and revealing. And that's the tough stuff. It's very, very difficult to do that in film, I think. But it's what film demands. I think it's interesting that you all three talk about the sort of intimacy from having Tony was only for breakfast every day. I mean, I always prefer being face-to-face with a writer rather than... I find this thing of just sending notes very strange and impersonal. I mean, I think I was lucky with, with the setup with Red Riding because, because of the way we were able to work at Revolution, I was able to devote a lot of time to it. I mean, of course, it's not always easy to find who it is that ideally you want to work yeah. with on something. That's a big, big deal. You've got an idea, you've got a book you want to adapt or whatever it is. Of course, I'm, I'm talking here specifically about stuff that I bring as opposed to stuff that Brian's been, although in fact that spy project thing that I was talking about, that was brought to me. And I thought, well, I, I've never done anything like this. And the person said, no, 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 I think you'd be really good. So funnily enough, things that people bring to you aren't necessarily, sometimes other people know mm. as a writer yeah. Yeah. that you could do something that you would never have taken on your, you, you know, you'd never have come up with yourself. So that's, that's about trusting mm. people mm. around you to say, well, actually, there may be something in this and I should take this more seriously than I would do otherwise, even though I would never in a million years have said, I'd like to do a movie like that. That's not different from a director actually having to do something they haven't originated themselves as well. So you have to get into the mindset of the, of the people who've brought it to you, but also the story. Yeah. And, and director has to get into the mindset of the, the writer. Of course, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, if you want Martin Scorsese or, or you know, whoever it is to do your picture, you know, that process of getting a director or pr- producer you really admire, Scott Rudy, whoever it is, to take your work, your idea, your script seriously and read it properly is, is an incredibly tortuous. I mean, that's a more, we're not really talking about that technical side of agents and how, I mean, I once wrote a script for, for Robert Redford and to get, Redford had commissioned it, all right, but to get him to read it, we had to do it as if, as if he'd never come across the idea and there were scripts left everywhere. So, Bob, have you seen this one? You know, eventually he read it. He'd commissioned it. And we, everybody who ever met him had to hand him a script and finally he looked at it, even though it was sort of his idea. You know, so that's, but that's a different problem. I mean, you know who you're getting into bed with, I think. And you somehow think, as we were saying, you somehow think it's going to be different. And I, there's one experience I had working with Tom Cruise and I, I didn't work directly with him. Uh, I worked with a director called John Wu and... Uh, Tom Cruise's producing partner, who's called Paula Wagner. And I always was angling for this meeting with Tom Cruise, which never happened. I used to get notes, as Linda says, from third hand. Oh, no, there were notes from, from him, but they were sort of written rather than said to me. And eventually, I was sitting there one, in Paramount one day at about 12.30, 
and a lot of food was being brought in, you know, I thought, ooh, what's going on here, into the sort of back area of the offices, and they said, oh, Tom's coming in for lunch. I thought, ooh, you know, I might angle a, angle a bit of food, or <laughs> actually meeting Tom, I think. And I said, um, who's, who's he meeting with? Because a lot of food coming in. And uh, they said, oh, he's not meeting with anyone. I said, gosh, she must be very hungry. <laughs> and, it all, and it was, you know, there was a pizza, and, and it wasn't just the one from Domino's. It was like, you know, all the way across town, Chinese, Italian, this, that, this, that. Probably about 10 meals came in. And I said, who's going to eat all the food? And they said, well, we, haven't, he, we don't know what he wants to eat yet. So we get him everything, and then he chooses, you know. And he's, he's on the phone, he's in the black Ferrari, he's coming into town. And I, so I, I said... I, of course, didn't realise the, for the interns who worked there, the runners and people, it was heaven for them because the stuff that Tom Cruise didn't eat, they ate. So, in fact, I would say, oh, that, isn't that ridiculous? Why didn't you just call him and say, what do you feel like eating? Yeah, hamburger or something. But I walked away from that. I didn't get any lunch. I didn't meet him <laughs> at that point. But what I realised, I was writing a, a movie about a mercenary in 19th century China for him, a wonderful story. But I realised I was just another... I was just the Chinese male. You know, there was a, some bloke writing a gangster movie, there was a woman writing a romantic comedy, there was a whole gang of us around town. And we were really... And which one would he do today? In the end, he did a... He didn't do the Chinese. He did the Chinese. He did a Japanese movie. I won't even remember what that was. You know, with... Yeah, whatever that was. So that, that was his sort of... His taste of the East, you know, as much as... Now, I thought that somehow my experience there, I was very much being looked after by one of the producers on the project, so that was, at least I had that going on. But I somehow thought that I would change the system. I was wrong, but I knew going into that. The combination of Cruz, Paramount, and Paula Wagner, you know, was not going to be an easy one, let's put it like that. And there were probably at least 20 projects being written for him at that place, let alone everything else across town, which has been sent to him. Now, I could have avoided that situation. I could have not. It wasn't my idea. It was their book. They asked me to do it. And after that, I thought, gosh, how can you be more careful about you know, who you work with and give yourself a better shot of, well, in this case, of them actually make, making the movie? David Mamet is always interesting, amusing to read on writing. He said that any time he hears someone say, film is a collaboration, he feels they should add and bend over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you think that's more extreme in the States in terms of, you know, I know, for example, Ivan Reitman in the past, the Montecito Company, when they've been doing a lot of these big comedies, the sort of twins kind of film, they hire five different teams, sometimes five different teams of writers who work in isolation. They don't know who else is working on it except for the you know, gossip, a certain amount of gossip mm. in town. And then they, they cherry pick. Mm. And I remember when this method was first, I first heard, I was at a writer's workshop at Dartington, and the, the, the European writers were sort of offended. And um, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who I think wrote Superman, mm, yes, and various, anyway, Lorenzo, very busy. He said, no, you don't, you Europeans don't get it. A lot of writers are being paid, and they are feeding their children. Yeah. But do you think there are, there are huge differences between <coughs> how people work here and... Um, yeah, I'm story. sure. I mean, in, in Europe, people, directors I've worked with to here do take far more responsibility. I mean, I'm talking about the studio. Although John Woo was on that one project, his, his graph of English wasn't terrifically good. So that was a complicated relationship. And then he found himself flying 
he then went on to run the Mission Impossible. And he, he flew to New Zealand to shoot it. And he was on one plane, and Robert Tao, you know, the guy who wrote Chinatown or whatever, who'd been brought in to write on this, was on the other plane with Tom Cruise. So John Wu at that point realised that his position as director was somewhat being undermined, the fact that he wasn't travelling with the, with the writer and the actor. Working for an institution like that, and I think some, you know, the BBC might sometimes be guilty of it as well, as opposed to smaller individual producers or individual individuals who don't belong you know, within a great framework. I think that that on the whole is a more on the whole, is a more productive way to do it if you can. It's not always possible to, you know, the, the problem is, you know, you write your script and you send it out and how many people come back? One person in the end comes back and wants to do it. This idea of bidding, oh, they'll all bid for it and they'll all want it. In the end, one person wants to do it. And you say, well, I don't really like this producer. What am I going to do? Not make it or work with this producer or director I don't really like. You know, that's the reality, I'm afraid. So you then have to find a way to at least you know, get the best out of the relationship, even though it wasn't the person who you dreamt about working with. Or, but that happens in casting, that happens with everything. It's who you've got, and you've got to find a way to get on with it. That's the real nitty-gritty of it. Not, oh, wouldn't it be great if Ridley read it, and we could all have dinner, and he'd love it, and shoot it tomorrow? You know, that, unfortunately, rarely happens. I'm sure it's happened to somebody, but it's not happened to me. One particular writer I've worked with a bit, David Perry, is rather... He's, it's terrific working with him, because when he delivers a script... The script's on the table between you, and, and it's as if he didn't write it. He's not defensive. It's as if we can talk about it as if, almost as if a third person wrote it. And I think it's, it's quite tricky, and this is where it gets into issues of the relative track record of the producer or director and the writer, about how one approaches it. <laughs> Again, it's impossible to generalise. I think the hard part is when it, it's not working very well. By that I mean when... I, as director, am really unhappy with the script and the way the development is going. How do I then deal with the writer most productively, most fruitfully, to get the best out of the writer? Because ultimately, and I think this is with a lot of serious directors, that you, you ultimately can only make what you can make. You, you, you organically have a certain way of doing things and you want to mould a project to your sensibility. That sounds very highfalutin, but in fact, it means you want to make it something that you can bring something to, genuinely. That can look from the outside like a terribly egotistical process, as though you're usurping something other somebody else has created, and you're trying to force you, yourself shabbily upon it. On the surface level, it's a negotiation. On a deeper level, you realize that a lot of what is, what you might feel at first is opposition is a degree of agreement coming from very different <coughs> positions. So there's room for a kind of meeting of minds. When there's genuine difference, and this is the hard part, where, where you genuinely feel opposed to what is going on in the script. Maybe the writer, you feel, has not understood the potential of the character or is diminishing the character or is, has created a story situation which suddenly makes what was potentially a rich theme very banal. To move that into something richer, then there, there, there are no rules. That's discussion with the writer that's trying to, to be able to communicate and 
persuade in as honest and candid a way as you can. Then if there is no meeting, then there is opposition, and then there has to be a solution to be found. And usually, at the end of the day, it's the director who must take ultimate responsibility because there is a very, very big divide between the screenplay and the realization of the work of the director. Good writers, good producers are aware of that and have a faith in that. I think one of the problems for young writers and directors now is that because of the problems in the business and economics, there is an enormous amount of micromanagement that goes on. And micromanagement is a terrible block to creativity. And I know, again, that sounds very highfalutin, but it just doesn't means you feel like a slave rather than free. You've got to feel free in your work. You've got to have a certain joie de vivre. And if somebody's coming with endless bloody notes telling you exactly what to do with each moment, it's very difficult to work with a sense of joy and a real sense of idealism, which I think is vitally necessary to what we do. I have a tendency to want to say, I really don't like that bit, but I suppress that as much as I can to sort of ask more questions about why, why did you do that, rather than going in like a ton of books. I really hate that. Yeah, certainly the stuff that's working, it's much nicer to hear about that stuff <laughs> yeah. that isn't working. And it actually gives you a clue, a much better clue. I'm, I'm always surprised when producers don't attack stuff like this, mm -hmm. which is... I mean, unless it's a complete disaster, but they don't like some of it, and they do like some of it. Why do they like the stuff that they like? It's, it's, it's rare that you have that conversation, it's, oh, you know, the mm. end doesn't work, or that character doesn't work. And often you can find the clues to the rest of it mm. in what's working. But it's amazing yeah. how often it gets attacked on, this bit's bad, can you fix, <laughs> this, can bit? You yeah, fix yeah. this bit? Yeah, Instead no. of, how, why does that bit work and not that bit? Yeah. You know? yeah. And also the other thing is that, the language is so nebulous. The language of development is so nebulous and difficult. And, and often the people you're working with, or sometimes people you're working with, aren't terrifically experienced in using the language. Sometimes they'll come up with a problem, and they're wrong about the problem, but there is a problem there. But they're just uh, verbalising it in, in the wrong way. So you have to be highly attuned to that particular issue as well, I think. I mean, Brian's very right, just to go back to that point that he was making. If there's a problem in the script, it's a, it'll be a really big problem in the mm. film. If there's a little problem, let's go, oh, can we get away with that? No, you can't. You think you can, and you look and think, oh, Christ, why didn't we deal with that? Because it seems somehow massive when it's on the television or in the, in the film, and you think you can glide over things, and writers can do that. That's why Brian's right, because as a writer, you can push over something. Mm, didn't, there's not quite an issue there, but if it's, if you, when you read it carefully, or when you film it, and you think, my God, that's a real problem. So you can't get away with anything. I mean, writers can get away with stuff. Directors can't get away with anything. And I do give them that, that they're due for that. Well, again, there is a slight analogy between the work of the actors and the work of the writer. A really good actor is a fantastic Geiger counter to radioactive problems in the script, to, to, to script issues. If an actor has a problem with a scene... They may not be able to explain it, but it's usually to do with character logic, emotional logic, psychological logic. And you better pay attention as a director, you know, when, it, when it's a great actor. They go to the heart. So this discovery of these deep issues in a script, you, as, as Rupert says, you, you may not have the language for it. Actually, as, because of the language of development, everybody's finding their way because each pro project is unique. But... You, you have to worry away at it. There's no, you, there's no avoidance. 
Oddly enough, I mean, I've found even when I've written my own material, I come up against exactly the same issues when I'm in pre-production. I've often forgotten what the creative motive was for various things that are now there on the page. When I can rediscover what those were, sometimes through quite a laborious process, but if I'm able to rediscover what those were, then usually it was because the scene is okay. If I can't, and I've forgotten, usually it's because it was quite thin, it was functional, it was some reason. It, it's there that I've now forgotten, is lost in the mists of time, and doesn't have a, a depth logic in, on the page. And therefore, it can be reworked or rethought now under the, the real pressure of actually realising the bloody thing and making it live. That's a good point. I mean, I think on the writer-director thing, it's absolutely vital, a writer, if you're a writer-director, that so you have a person you can... You don't cut one layer out by being a writer-director. You need a producer you really yeah. trust. And to be honest, I've rarely come across a writer-director who was, as, who was as good as, at both things. They're really either a director or a writer who happens to be doing the other thing. But they yeah. really need... I think all directors should write, for sure, because they need to know what it's like. Well, I don't think all producers need to know how to write. But it's quite rare that you meet a director who is as good at the one as, as at the other. And, he, and the way to become that, I think, is to find a producer who you really trust. And it doesn't just cut out a, a part of the process. It, it just makes it different. I mean, I've worked with a lot of writer-directors, and I completely agree that I think it's very dangerous to kind of cut out that layer of collaboration. And I think it must be hugely stressful for them as well to not have or to feel that they're shouldering the whole creative responsibility without having the kind of intelligent and sensitive sounding boards to the work. Um, so I completely agree with that. I was also thinking about the first film that I produced, Karen Adler's film Under the Skin, which actually was, from my point of view, was a fantastic experience because she, as a writer-director, totally understands that and knows she needs collaboration. And we started that project, we did a short together and then we started the feature very much from scratch. So I was with her really from page one, day one. And as my first film, as first feature as a producer and her first feature as a writer-director, I don't think we could have done it any other... Well, we could have done it any other way, but we couldn't have made the film we ended up making together any other way because by the time we were shooting the film, I absolutely, as much as I could, I understood what she was trying to do. And so therefore, when people were questioning it or we were being challenged by crew members or by actors or whoever... She knew she could rely on me to defend the film in the way that she would defend the film and to create the space for her to direct it in the way that she needed to direct it. And if I'd come later into the process, especially, especially as a new producer, I'd have been out of my depth and floundering and unable to kind of cope with the challenges that we faced on making that. And I would, have, would not have done her the service, you know, the yeah, job that yeah. she needed. I mean, that's a good um, point. I mean, I think you know very soon, when you, when you start to talk to someone, when they've read your script or an idea, or you know very early on whether this person, assuming they're good at their job, I mean, assuming they know how to direct, but is the right person for it. I think you get a feeling, yeah. don't you, whether, they're, whether it's going to work at all. And the earlier in the process, that is the better, because you don't want to you know, discover stuff later on. But I think you get, I mean, I'm thinking of the stuff that I've done, and you've, people have got to be really committed to it. They sound yeah. silly, yeah. but it's surprising how often... That isn't the case. People have really got to want to do it and kind of stick through it. Given that, the money's going to drop out, the yep. actors are going to drop out, you know, the everything's going to go wrong. If you don't have people you can trust with you, 
it's almost certainly never going to get done. You can guarantee that there are not enough people, you know, who are really passionate and, and, and believe in it. And I think, you know, you have to have so much conviction. Everybody involved has to have so much conviction to get the film made. If you're feeling you're on the sort of outside somehow, it's really hard to have that conviction and it's really hard, you know, for my job to convince people to part with the money to <coughs> make it, you know... I know that that conviction is much stronger when, I, when I've been on the inside and when I'm kind of in sync with the creative process and can kind of exp- you know, know that if the director's not in the room that I can talk about the film. Yeah. Not in the same way that they would because obviously they're going to come at it you know, with, with the kind of unique vision that a director brings to it. But, but I can bring my own take. And particularly with you know, films like Under the Skin or Samantha Morton's film The Unloved, which I did... As long as he feels that he can trust you to read his script and to understand that and that you can communicate it, then actually it's quite a straightforward, bizarrely, it's quite a straightforward process. So other questions? Or... I guess this is a question for Rupert and Brian. When you get sort of sales agents and financiers getting involved in your creativity, your script or the way you direct something or your edit, how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? Well, they, you know, the old thing is, you know, writers, directors say, you know, you've got to write something that I can direct, and producers say, you know, you've got to direct something that I can sell. I mean, that's the bit you're talking about. And the sales agents say, give me something that I can go out and sell. Obviously, a lot of what sales agents do is to do with who, the, who you're going to cast in it, isn't it? As opposed to the sense of, on the whole, you don't involve sales agents really, really early on. If they're going to pay for some of it, then some of what they say is going to have to be taken on board, if that's possible. If it's not possible, then they're, they're the wrong sales agent. But, yeah, whether it's Harvey or whether it's, you know, whoever it is, once they hand over the money, then they've got a lot of power on it. I mean, they can fire you for a start, you know, which, which they have done, in my case. I'm not necessarily the sales agent, but other people have. So, I don't mind. Brian, maybe Brian's better on sales agents. Or no, 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 I, I, no, certainly no better on them. Uh, it's the nitty-gritty. This is really the, the tough thing, and... For the most part, I've been blessed in the producers I've had. The reason I mention that is that the producers become very, very important when you're getting notes from the financiers and and the, the Weinsteins and so on. Because in my experience, when I've had a great producer, the producer will take the notes from Weinstein and we will digest them thoroughly and then answer in kind of debating style, every single note, very, very thoroughly. This was an intensive and incredible process. I mean, long-winded, took a lot of time. It's very time-consuming, in a sense, time-wasting, but ultimately not. Because, strangely enough, Weinstein, who is notorious, (coughs) his company, for trying to micromanage the edit and, and very often at script stages, I mainly dealt with him on the editing process on two movies. And it can be an absolute nightmare. But if you've got a great producer, the producer can handle that. And actually, to some extent, to one's advantage, you are always finally at their beck and call in that they will have the ultimate say. But you can get your way in with a lot of things. And what seem at first, the notes can be absolutely tormenting to get. First of all, you're, you're vulnerable. You, 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 psychologically, you're easily worked upon. I mean, Harvey loves getting a director in a room with a baseball bat. You know, it's, it's the sort of the, the metaphor that's used. And they really do knock you about. You know, grown men cry. You, see, you know, they can absolutely psychologically make it very difficult for you. 
But with a good producer, you can handle this process and handle it pretty effectively, uh, as I think we really did, but it was mainly my producer, to whom I was enormously grateful, who, when we got these, these screeds of notes, you know, you'd, you'd get sort of pages and pages on a cut, would just answer patiently every single note so that we ended up, uh, of, from six fool's cap pages, we'd end up with doing three things. I don't want to romanticize this process. It can be bloody difficult. You know, you go home, it's the silent scream. You go home just so angry and you've just acid stomach because of the tension and the resentment at some of the stupidity of the notes. <laughs> but also, of course, of course, because sometimes they are, you know, they're not so stupid. You know, you get, like in casting, you get notes. I remember when I was doing Tom and Viv, Keanu Reeves was suggested as a lead because he'd once played something in a suit. So you do, get, you do get things of that level, but you also get some smart suggestions, too, hidden amongst the dross, and you have to discover them. I mean, I, as an independent producer, I don't, I'm not in a position where I can develop scripts without financiers, so every project that I'm developing will have you know, somebody paying for that process, which is you're quite early on into a process of kind of negotiating those notes. And I think really the times when I've had problematic relationships with the financiers has been when we aren't on the same page about why we're doing the film um, from the beginning, really. Um, and when it's been, and, you know, it's easy to kind of, I don't think this is what Brian's doing, and I'm sure I'd be terrified. I wouldn't want to be your producer face with Harvey in the bed. No, but in fact, I, but, in fact that's what I'm talking about. I think the good yeah. producer, by answering the notes, is actually... Yeah, is re-reminding them. Re-reminding them, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there are good execs out there who are good at giving notes but I think that even the you know even when you're dealing with people who you know are good and you know you can trust if fundamentally there's a kind of misconception or a misunderstanding yeah. about what the what you and the writer or writer and director think is the germ of the film then you just you just hit so many brick walls. I mean it's about protecting isn't it yeah. Brian? Mm. Effectively yeah. the producer's yeah. job is to protect the writer yeah. and the director from all that wave of stuff you know that's, that, that's coming in. It's like a director on the set. The actors only want to hear one voice, and the writer really only wants to hear one voice, so that everything is channeled through. That's absolutely right, both of you. That's a really good way of putting it. And that's what you want. You want to be protected, I think. Let's go here, then we'll come to um, you. Yeah, I was just wondering um, which sort of qualities you think are most important as director, writer, that sort of distinguish the good producers from the sort of exceptional producers, and that are perhaps often neglected or forgotten about by producers themselves. One, one thing I would say, apart from the, all the money side and, you know, ha handling that and being able to catalyze the pro project and, and get finance for it. So if we put that aside, I actually think insight, love of the material and this process, whether they don't have to be brilliant literary critics or anything like that, but if they love the project, to be committed for the long term with the ideal of the movie, the best movie that can be made of this, and protect that idea. That's actually, it's an easy thing to say and it's a bloody difficult thing to do. And the good producers, the exceptional producers do that. They get a piece of material and they know this could make a wonderful project and then they try to get creative people involved who will make it happen and create the environment with all the unbelievable pressures that there are to 
impinge on that to create the environment of freedom where those people will be able to do their creative work and protect that all along the process. And it's quite a weird thing because it's an abstract thing. They've got to have it in mind and then be able somehow to work through to create it in reality. Get people working, crew of, you know, so 120 people in the whole circus moving and all the way through protect that inner thing because essentially that's what the writer is doing and that's what the director is doing as well. You, you have to be tough on the outside to be soft on the inside to, to hold on to that creative thing that you've got. The, the, the wonderful thing you want to tell that's easily bruised, easily knocked out of you too. That's why you've got to sort of toughen up to be able to deal with all the negotiations and all the, all the stuff. But still, you're protecting that thing inside and that's what you want. The, I think the great producer does have that idealism and you feel it. That's a good point. I mean, I, I think there's another sort of side on that Brian, which is to do with the producer understanding what they've got in their hands mm. and not making it into something that mm. it isn't. Mm. And pretty, some producers, you look at material and say, well, maybe this is not a movie, maybe it's a television series. Or, if it is a movie, what size... I remember Alberto Pasolini did, I think, a fantastic job on The Full Monty in terms of the producing on that, in that he came under a lot of pressure from... In the end, um, 20th Century Fox, or Fox Searchlight did it, but he, he came under a lot of pressure from... Harvey Weinstein and I think working title they wanted to do it but they wanted to do it with so and so so and so so and so kind of not big movie <coughs> actors but movie actors that sort of you'd vaguely heard of and Alberto absolutely stuck to his guns and there wasn't anybody in that movie and so working uh, Fox Searchlight said to him right we'll give you the smallest amount of money that it's worth our while accounting wise to make this movie they gave him a million and a half dollars and they said, now go away. If you don't have anybody in it. And, he's, and, he, and he was absolutely right not to have anybody in it at all. I mean, there was, you know, Tom Wilkins and people like that. But at, at that time, they, you know. He, yeah, you know, they weren't. And then I was amused to see that the then Lindsay Law, who then became, ran Fox Searchlight after that, used to go around giving seminars on, you know, me and the full month. <laughs> whereas he said, now go away, Bert. I never want to see you again. But he absolutely, you know, and he... I really admired that piece of producing on that, you know, as to how he understood what he had. And I think often people don't understand. They think, well, if we could get a big star, or if we could get a lot of money, or we could do this, do that. And it's to understand the, what is the market for it, what's its best possibility. And, and sometimes things aren't movies. Sometimes they're like the Red Riding thing. Yeah, that yeah. was a right decision. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't a movie. It was a great, yeah. great television series. Yeah. And getting that right is, a, is a, another great trait that a producer can have. I mean, I think it's interesting what Brian was saying about, you know, and I think both of you were saying about kind of casting your, your kind of collaborators. And I, and I, from the producing side, I would sort of urge that as well. You know, I think, you know, too often people just scattergun an approach and don't necessarily think about, well, what kind of films does this producer do? Or what kinds of films does this director do? And of course, you know, everybody wants to be surprised and have an opportunity to do something different. But it doesn't really work to get an approach where somebody's looked at your IMDb credits, which frankly are always yeah, inaccurate I, anyway. No, that's right. no, no. <laughs> and certainly mine are. <coughs> all sorts of bizarre things on there. But, um, and approached you because of something they've seen that actually doesn't really bear any relationship mm. to the body of work that you've been involved in to date. That's you a have great, to have a great them. moment, that, isn't it? When, yeah, you, when you find a producer or a writer or a director, one of the mm. best moments, and you sort of, you've got an idea or they've got something, and you realise this is something you're both potentially really passionate about. Yeah. 
you know, one way to do that is to do that in a very informally. Mm. You know, I take Brian out for a coffee and say, I've got this, you know, whether you're interested in this, and it, and it may, yes or no, but, and it has to yeah. start right yeah. at the sort of bottom level. It isn't necessarily about a formal meeting. I'll go in and see no. Richard Danton. Yeah. It's not about Pitch. pitching yeah. an idea necessarily. It's kind of, I read this book. I'm sort of interested. There's something about this book that I'm, I, mean, I just sent a book yesterday to a director I work with. It's a book called The Shah of Shahs, about the downfall of the Shah of Iran. And now I have a feeling he might be interested in something about that. I may be completely wrong. Yeah, why on earth did you send me this book? You know, I might get a response like that. But it's those kind of... And I don't know what I want to do about the Shah of Iran. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't. (laughs) But that can be a really exciting... Keep keep having those sort of those things going out. Little conversations, things sent, emails, anything. And then you get a sense that might... I love that part of it. Well, it's just worth saying that for for young producers in this country, in in Europe generally, I mean, to to generalise terribly, but you don't know how many movies you're going to get to make in your career, just as a director doesn't. And Europe is, you know, it's, it's, it's harder in a way to have real longevity. So the projects, it's worth having a certain sense of real desire and commitment about it, not routine, because you don't know how long the routine's going to be to last for. I mean, I think the other difficulty that we all face is that there's very little money in development, you know, in development yeah. particularly for the producers. So... You know, the tricky thing, because I absolutely agree with, with Brian and Rupert, that commitment and the kind of commitment to a, the long term, you're hoping when you start that first germ of a conversation over a cup of coffee that you're going to end up developing the script, cheating it, taking it and editing it and taking it out into the marketplace. Well, that could be four years work, if you're lucky. So you have to have that commitment, but you also have to run a number of projects simultaneously because you can't earn a living off one project. Mm-hmm. That's a real challenge, I think, for everybody. And that must be the, you know, that's the same for you as writer and, and director as well. I have always have this theory in America, making movies is part of the national economy. I mean, America's gonna keep making movies. Here, you know, Britain's not gonna come to a halt if no one made films. There's no natural momentum. You're not part of a machine here. So I think you have to have such a far greater passion and commitment to get anything made here because it's so hard, whatever else or whatever wants to say. It's really tough. And I think it's different because you're, const- you're fighting against the state of the in yeah. a sense. <laughs> On that cheerful note. That's, that's a depressing point. <laughs> so it's a gentleman at the yes. Yeah, I just wanted to hear more from Kate about the process of working with Terence and Deep Blue Sea in that particular relationship, oh, which, okay. you, which you sort of alluded to, but just sure. in more detail. Well, actually, um, that project was developed by Sean O'Connor, who I produced the film with, and he had worked in the theatre and had known Frith Banbury, who directed the original version, stage play version in the 50s, and had a lot of dealings with the Rattigan estate. And so when the discussions and plans were happening about what was going to happen in the centenary year last year, Sean wanted to do a, an adaptation of one of Rattigan's plays for the screen. Initially, he was thinking it might be for TV rather than as a movie. But he also had the brilliant idea of taking it to Terence, as Distant Voices Still Lives is one of his favourite films, and he just thought there'd be a marriage of the Terence Davis with Terence Raskin seemed like a really exciting idea. So they had a discussion about the Deep Blue Sea, and Terence agreed to adapt it. And I think initially, I, I came on board once it was developed, so I didn't follow the development process through, but... But from the conversations I've had with Terence and Sean, I think initially Terence was quite cautious. He'd never adapted a play before, and so he wasn't quite sure what his way in was going to be. He has done other adaptations. Two of his films have been adapted from, from novels. 
But I think initially he was a bit cautious, and the sort of first draft that he submitted, Sean and the Rattigan estate, who were funding the development, just said, just be bolder, just be more adventurous with it, make it your own, don't worry about, you know, being respect, you know, overly respectful to the source and to the text, we want a Terence Davis film as much as, you know, a version of The Deep Blue Sea. And so I think that kind of freed him up and liberated him. And I think at that point he did two things. He identified for him what the play was really about, which was an exploration of love. And he identified that he wanted to tell that exclusively from Hester's point of view. And then he also opened... So in some ways he narrowed the play down to kind of concentrate on her point of view. But then he opened it up in a temporal way by playing with past and present in a way that he's consistently done across all of his work. And I think that's really what everyone was looking for, was for it to have Terence's signature on, you know, on the Rattigan piece. By the time I came on board, Sean had taken the script to the then Film Council as a proposition for a feature film, and they'd really loved it. But there was a sort of time frame issue as well in terms of how quickly we needed... In order for it to be ready for the centenary year, it had to go very quickly into production at that point. And so they encouraged him to find another producer to collaborate with who had put films, you know, who had more, slightly more experience of putting films together and could work with him to make sure it kind of happened in that time frame. So I came on board at that stage. So when I came on board, in a sense, I came on board a Terence Davis film because the kind of work of the adaptation had already really taken place. And I decided not to go back to the play because I actually thought that wasn't. From my point of view, in terms of producing it, that wasn't really that helpful because I was working off the kind of blueprint that was Terence's script. In the script, the script is very prescriptive about the camera moves. It's very prescriptive about the rhythm of speech and for the actors and the camera moves. And so in that, in that way, it's a kind of absolute blueprint. In terms of the kind of collaboration with the designer, that's a more sort of open... For Terence, that's a more open process. So... We worked very hard with him to put together a crew that we felt were kind of really, really got what, he, what he'd written on the page, partly because it had been 10 years since he'd made a fiction film. A lot of his regular crew either had kind of reached, you know, had retired or were no longer available to us because we didn't have the rates, we weren't paying the rates that they would want to command. So we put together an entirely new crew that he'd never worked with before, which was very exciting for him and which he... He loved doing. And we had fantastic actors who had a really, really intelligent response to the text and were great collaborators for both with Terence and with each other. I mean, and we, they, just, they were just amazing. So it's one of those dream jobs. You know, I came on board in June and we were financed by September and shooting the film in November. And you go, OK, was it, was it easier, I'd like to do that again. <laughs> was it easier or harder to work with a sort of an auteur of that sort of... Well, I mean, it's a different process. You you kind of, you realise that the satisfaction for me that, you know, I love to be creatively involved. I love to be able to knock a script round, hopefully in a constructive way and, and in the edit. But if that's not helpful to the director and that's not constructive, then I'm only going to be in the way. So my, I have to find my satisfaction, you know, my creative satisfaction. We made the film. We made a really beautiful film. I got to work with a director that I really admire. And, that's an, and three actors who are some of the best we have in this country. That, for me, is hugely satisfying. Did I get into the nitty-gritty of the script? No, I didn't. Does that matter? No, it doesn't. So... I think you have to be quite grown up, you know, yeah. and sort of take a grown up perspective and go, actually, that's fine. I can let that go. 
I think we've got time for one last question. Hello. Um, how do you get somebody to look at your script, like a producer, for example? Because surely they get thousands of scripts through all the time on a regular basis. I mean, they could just look at it and then, you know, chuck it in the bin the next moment. And that's the last thing, you know, a writer wants to happen to their work of art they've worked, you know, years for, maybe, perhaps. Is this with when you don't have an agent? Or well, if you don't have an agent, because well, I'm assuming you do need an agent, do you, initially? Well, that it's, stage, it's, once you've done a it's, hard, it's hard to get an agent to read it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> precisely. So how do you get to that Never stage? ends this problem. No, no, I, rem I remember my first day at Columbia Pictures in Los Angeles when I had to spend three hours with senior counsel being told that on no account could I look at a script that hadn't come through an agent or a well-known entertainment lawyer. And I said, yeah, but these packages are coming into the London office. You know, I can't, without opening them, I don't know what's in them. Whether, but, <laughs> so we, we spent three hours trying to talk around that. But the, the studios are hyper-neurotic about that, so it's very hard unless you know someone. Let's talk about here rather than yeah. in, in Los Angeles. It's a different thing. You, I mean, here, it's coming to things like this in some ways. And, and, you know, hearing people's questions, working out who's who, going to screening. I mean, it's just being able to have a brief conversation with someone saying, I want to write a film about the Shah of Iran or whatever it is. Could we have a check conversation about it? Could I send you a script? Could I, I mean, making some contact with some, in a personal way, rather than just putting in the post with Tim Bevan written on it, because he'll never read it. I mean, I think festivals are a great place. Yeah. Because I think that one of the things that really frustrates me about my, or I hate to hear from fellow producers, is I go to Cannes and I never see films. What are you doing in Cannes if you are not watching films? I mean, honestly, you're not doing your job. You have to be doing the meetings, you have to be trying to chase down, you have to be going to the parties, you have to be doing everything else, but you should be watching films because everybody else is, and that is the currency of the industry, and everybody's talking about them. So I think festivals are a great place because you want, you want to work with people who you have something to say to them and you want to have a conversation with. So I think you st try and start informal conversations, try and have a cup of coffee with people and you've been standing in line for a film together and you're talking about it or you see them in the bar or whatever. It's that you have to make some, as Rupert says, some sort of connection. On a practical level, if that's not possible, then I would rather look at a synopsis to see whether the idea engages me rather than read a script initially if it's somebody that I haven't met. And then if the idea engages me, then I want to find out more. But, you know... I think if you can, it's quite good to try to meet some of the the younger executives in the companies, because you might not get to Tim Bevan, but you might get to someone who's a reader or, you know, working in the office at work, you know, well, not the social, just talking about working title, but with any of the companies. I once saw Saul, I was on a panel with Saul Zantz once in Carla Vivari, and somebody tried to give him a script afterwards. And he said, you know, it's a guy who made Amadeus and English patient. He said, I, I make one film every five years. I'm not taking your script. This would be another five years before I want to do it. But I've never seen anyone else do that. I've never seen anyone refuse other than Saul. <laughs> I think if you're just starting out, the answer is it's, it's difficult. If you've got no access, if you've got no network and you don't know people, clearly it's not, it's not going to be easy. But I think you take this sort of advice. Also look to young filmmakers. There are loads and loads of graduates coming out of good... You look at the, 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 the best film schools with the best student films... And there are those who may not get the prizes, but who also have qualities and so on, trying to make relationships. 
those are people that would be hungry to have some good material. They may be able to help you also if they fall in love with your work. So it's all happenstance, but you can make certain things happen. You've really got to be tough and go out there to, to do that. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BAFTA podcast. For more information about the Academy and BAFTA archive, please visit www.bafta.org.